Ramaravati this afternoon. The purpose of this, this series of talks is to open up subjects of interest and concern for people because uh, at this time in Britain the social issues, religious issues, moral issues, all these are becoming quite prominent, outstanding in people's minds. Because we're living at a, at a time where we need to look more deeply at ourselves in the society we live in and the world that we share with, with all other beings. We can no longer think in terms of isolation or living for ourselves alone. Say in the past 50 years it's become obvious that we're all on the same planet with all human beings, all sentient beings in fact, and that we are all related to each other just by that reason alone, that we, we're all planetary beings. And that when one group has privileges and the other doesn't, this lead this is an imbalance. Will always create some kind of conflict wherever there's injustice or unfairness or uh, disequilibrium. Then the result will be an increase in the suffering in the human realm as well as in affecting the lives of all other creatures. It's wise now to, to reflect that we are all related, interrelated. We're all supporting each other, whether it's in the European side or the Asian, African, the Americas, that we're no longer nations that can live live our lives independent uh, uh, and it, disregarding the effect we have on the other, on the rest of the nations of the world so what i intend to do is to try to bring up subjects to be to to be reflected on what i'm trying to do here is not to tell you what your personal responsibilities are and what you have to do or to dictate to you in any way, but merely to present an occasion where you can reflect, you can consider issues from your perspective, from the way you feel and the way you experience life. All I can do is reflect from my own experience that I can give you, I can share that with you. As far as your own responsibilities in your life as you live it and your experience of it, that is something you know and you must be honest about and come to terms with, understand. This is one of the great uh, attractions, I think, of Buddhism at this time is that it offers this way 
uh, of intelligent reflection on the human predicament this situation that we all share of being born as, uh, in the human form and living having to live for a lifespan maybe up to 70, 80, 90, 100 years at the most and during this time this span of life in the human form on this planet we have to experience all kinds of things from the best to the worst from good to bad from pleasure to pain this is common to every single human being there's no one exempt from this experience of suffering of growth of aging of death personal responsibility we many more people now are beginning to ask what what must I do what should I do with my life can I just live it uh, according to impulses fashions of the time just how what I feel like doing or not doing do I have the right really is it fair is it just is it beautiful behavior for me to just live life for my own safety security satisfaction and pleasure or is there something I must contribute to the whole of it since I since this being here is a part of the whole what is my responsibility in regards to the to the society I'm living in and to the planet that I share with all the rest of you if I'm a selfish small-minded being then I think get what I can for myself see what I can get uh, for my pleasure my security even if it's at the expense of the rest of you I have to scheme and manipulate control circumstances for my own benefit at the expense of everyone else that's what people or some people do they don't have a sense of personal responsibility in their life this has not developed <coughs> or has not been encouraged in fact the time has been one where personal responsibility has been for some people maybe a a rather unpleasant issue to be avoided living in, in modern western society sometimes we think maybe the government the government should do everything for me we've got to get the government to provide all the security all the little perks and pleasures of life make sure that I have these for the rest of my life and my family have them so modern politics often plays upon this selfish interest in, in uh, the citizens of western democracies by promising all kinds of advantages and opportunities and securities and that appeals to us in one way we'd like sometimes we don't feel that, that we're really strong enough or capable enough to be responsible that we still need a kind of overriding protector of some sort 
some kind of mother or father that will take care of us, nurture us, pat us on the back, pat us on the head, tell us everything is all right, provide for all our needs, swage our tears. And that's tempting. There's all the child in all of us that, that would really sometimes cries out for some external force to guide and help and, and nurture and comfort me when I'm frightened and ill and, and feel insecure. Governments, oftentimes modern governments, are pressured into fulfilling that role in some way or another, at least trying. Uh, one thing one notices in, in Western democracies is how demanding the citizens can be, making endless demands on the government for rights, privileges, all kinds of opportunities, uh, endless pressures placed and criticisms and very little gratitude. I've noticed this, this is my own observation in Britain and America, how little gratitude there is toward the good things and the, the generosity that, that our governments uh, uh, have given us. We tend to dwell on the, the threat, the things that might be taken away from us or the things that haven't been done yet or things that we, we don't like and don't want Then sometimes we feel that the government fails us, just like people sometimes feel God has failed them or their parents haven't done enough, haven't loved them enough. Because in spite of all the generosity and the security and, and benefits that we might have received from our parents, from the government, from God, we still find ourselves suffering, we still find ourselves discontent. It's not enough, is it? There's not enough in the universe to truly satisfy, to give us complete satisfaction and complete contentment. There's not a government that is possible to, that we can conceive of or even create that will be able to truly satisfy all our desires, needs, uh, desire for security. And this the Buddha pointed to very clearly was the fact of the human mind itself that as long as we are ignorant, and by ignorance I'm, I mean this term, uh, define this term as not knowing the truth of the way it is, in Buddhist terms, not knowing the Dhamma, not having realized the truth, not having penetrated the truth, then we operate from this state of ignorance, a self-view of me and mine as being as, as, as attached to this individual creature here. All its thoughts, feelings, moods, expectations, hopes, fears and dreads, the physical formation itself. One becomes so involved in 
so identified with, so attached to, that we can't see beyond it. So one can understand selfishness as this, as the natural result of this form of ignorance, of being solely identified, solely attached to these changing conditions of body and mind. In the West, our attachments have, have become complicated. Not only do we demand physical security, shelter and food and clothing and medical care, not only do we expect and demand that, but we demand all kinds of other uh, opportunities. We demand education and, and freedom uh, to do what we want, uh, time to, to live our lives in our own way, opportunity to develop our individual talents and abilities. We expect so much we demand so much and yet we ask ourselves how much have we offered how much have we what, what, what can we offer back is there something that each one of us must do or should do or be, would it be wise is there something that, that is important for us to know in order to, to pay back our debts in order to give back rather than to be just the perennial child endlessly demanding nourishment and safety from the mother. At this time also, there are so many pressures on people to, to take sides in various ways. Our minds tend to easily seek to attach to, to one side or another, to have a fixed position to hold on to, such a, a political view that we are very much attached to, or a religious view, a national view, social view, personal view, class, race, sex, all these we, be, we, take, we take sides with. In a modern university, this is this can be seen uh, in, its, in some of its most absurd forms, where people desperately taking sides with the most ridiculous issues. Having studied in the University of California in Berkeley, long before I became a monk, remember how how uh, dedicated young Americans were towards having, taking a side, having an opinion, having a viewpoint to operate from, either from the left or the right, or whatever, just as long as one adopted some particular viewpoint, position that one took, that, would, that one could use to, uh, say, feel a, a sense of purpose and meaning to one's life. In those days, to not have an opinion about anything at all was considered, you were considered a hopeless bore. Someone who was obviously so stupid they couldn't, couldn't uh, decide to, to go on this, the right or the left. 
And yet we begin to see that when we do take sides, when we attach to a particular viewpoint, then we become, and we become obsessed with that particular side, we lose our perspective, don't we? We lose our sensitivity to the other side. One can be so righteous, so caught up in, in righteous behavior, dedication to a particular view, particular point of view, particular side, that one loses all sensitivity, even towards one's own group, towards one's own family, towards, not to mention, the, the opposite side. We can be so dedicated towards our, a political viewpoint that we're willing to destroy the whole world just to hold to this view. A kind of fanatic uh, type of mind where one will blow up the world rather than, than compromise or change one's viewpoint in any way. Of course, these kind of human beings are extreme. They're not the... They're, they're the kind of very extreme type of, of minds. Most human beings do have a sense for some, some sense of proportion, perspective, in which we, we tend to wobble and waver. We become confused because we, 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 we're not quite sure whether we we're really fully left or fully right on which side we should really align ourselves but wobble between the two. Sometimes we even feel envy for those that are very sure that their side is absolutely right at all times and wish we could be that strong, that convinced, that sure that this side is absolutely right and the other side is absolutely wrong. Some of us would really, wouldn't be really feel secure if we could feel that that, 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 that things were purely pure white and pure black. And then the choice would be easy, of course, we'd choose white. <laughs> and there's always the one that would choose black. But most people <coughs> think in terms of white being better than black. Not talking about racial issues. So this stage in between, this, this, this range in between extremes, this is where we have to live most of our life, isn't it? We can't, even, even, a, even the most dire fanatic has to come to terms with the facts of life and they have to eat food find a place to live, clothe the body, get old, suffer from illnesses, and uh, lose loved ones, uh, be separated from what one, what, what one likes and wants. We all have to be with, uh, many times of our life we find ourselves in situations that we don't like and don't want. We all suffer from the desire for wanting things that we don't have. And then there's the inevitable death that we all must experience. 
so that most of our life is in this is in this uh, uh, realm of neither right nor left, where we're just getting on with life as best we can on the physical plane, trying to get on in some way with with the people around us emotionally, trying at least to to find some peace and friendship and love amongst other human beings. So much of our life is just a waiting process and we're we're waiting for things. We're just going from one place to another. Life, uh, so much much of it really is just the, the, the waiting for something else. The anticipation, the longing, the expectation or the fear. Caught up in worry. Not really with the way life is not acknowledging, not accepting life as it really is because the mind is so caught up with waiting for the next thing, longing for the next experience, waiting for the bus, waiting to get over the illness, waiting to die. The teaching of Buddha, the the, the reflection on Dhamma. This allows us, all of us, to open our minds to life without being forced to take a position. We're not against taking positions. We're not saying you shouldn't have any position, have any viewpoint, any opinion whatsoever. But to transcend the need and the, de- and the blind desire to just be attached to views and opinions means that we we can contemplate, we can reflect on this tendency we all have towards being attached to them. And this, I notice, is a particular strong problem with the Western civilization, is that we've become so idealistic, so caught up in theories and views about how everything should be, I notice the people that, uh, just the, the, the monks, the nuns that live here, and the, the people that I meet in Britain, uh, their standards are very high, most of them. They want the best. They know how everything should be. I meet very few, kind of, very few people who are just deliberately mean and deliberately uncaring and, and totally selfish. Those are rare. Most of the people that I've met here have very high standards. They want the best of life. They want to perfect everything. They'd like to have everything at its best. Whatever that best might be to that particular person. We can imagine the best, can't we? We can conceive with our minds how things should be. And that's why we become so critical, because we can see that that this society isn't really what it should be. British society, is it? It should be other than other than this. It should be better. We can become so aware of the things that have gone wrong, the mistakes that have been made, the inefficiency of it, the bureaucracy of it, the injustices that we see and know about. 
these become dominant in the mind because we can imagine that a state without all this, the utopian society where everything is as it should be, the paradise where everything's fair, just, equal, kind, loving, but then life as it is. How is it for you? Your own life. What is your life really like? Without using your critical faculty. Without blaming. Now this is what we call opening the mind to the way it is. It's not looking at the, the life we're living uh, with the, with, by criticizing it. I say, I don't like this, it should be otherwise. This, I wish this weren't here, I don't want that. I want to keep this. I want to hold on to this. This person, if this person would go away, if that would change, if things could be otherwise, so then we become complainers, thinking that if everything were otherwise, and and if everything were the way that we wanted it to be, according to our idea, then we'd be happy. But this way of opening the mind to the way it is, uh, is we're not criticizing, we're not, we're not, this isn't to criticize or to affirm anything, but just to open up to life as we're living it. To be truly sensitive and open to both the good, the bad, the justices, injustices, the day and night, the sun and the rain, the heat and the cold. Mindfulness, in Buddhist terms, we talk about the way of out of suffering, the way out of this endless realm of suffering and dis, uh, disease is through mindfulness. But the mind is full, it's open, it's alert, it's attentive, it's receptive, sensitive. These words describe mindfulness. Now when you're attached to positions and views and ideas, then of course we know we can, we can be totally heedless. I can tell each one of you what you should be without knowing any of you. I, if I don't have to take the time to even know your name, talk to you for two minutes to tell you what you should be. I also notice it's very easy to give advice to people when other people are suffering and having great problems. It's very easy to give advice of what they should do. How cool one can be when someone else is very upset. But then you begin to notice that when you're upset, it's not so easy to follow your own advice, is it? When your emotions are stirred and agitated, you say, now be mindful, Sumato. Now just let go of it. Now don't, <laughs> don't say anything in anger. Don't give it a second thought. All this tremendously good advice is, 
is not as easy when when one is is uh, going through that realm, emotional suffering in one's own life. But when you do it, I find it very easy. I sit here and say, "Well, just now, be mindful, accepting. It will pass." <laughs> Why is that? Why is it easy to solve other people's problems, and it and it seems so difficult to solve one's own? Mindfulness. This is something that each one of us can do. It's not, it's not asking you to do something that is impossible. But we need to, to really contemplate what that means. Uh, when I first started uh, meditation, practicing meditation, I kept talking about mindfulness. And I didn't quite know what that meant, actually. I kept thinking that it was like concentrating on every little thing that, that, so that you were, you're supposed to be concentrated on when you, when you moved your, your right uh, little finger that you were mindful of it meaning you, you knew that you were moving your right little finger and each step you knew this is, this is the right foot stepping and then the left foot touching and on and on and like this. Mindfulness was just slowing down to where you could actually concentrate on the movements of your body or on lifting a glass or whatever. But this seemed to be uh, a very impractical thing to, if this was the way out of suffering then it would be very difficult to live one's life fully because one would be so busy concentrating on the movements of one's body that you you never have time for anything else. You never open the mind to life. You could at a monastery I I lived in for a while in Thailand. I remember they used to teach this this method of mindfulness where you walk very slowly. And one afternoon they, they had a meeting in the, in the hall there uh, for all the monks were sp- supposed to come. The meeting was scheduled for two o'clock, like this meeting. And uh, those of us who were not doing this kind of meditation were there by two. <laughs> but those that were doing this meditation, we had to wait about half an hour for them to get to move slowly from their little hot. Of course, we could be mindful of the irritation we were feeling at that time. <laughs> one had to, to acknowledge that there was a certain kind of irritation that one was experiencing, an impatience. But one wondered whether they were mindful of the fact that they were late and keeping everyone else waiting. Or were they just so busy concentrating that they didn't take into account the time and the place what is necessary for that particular time and place. So if we fix on a view of what is mindful then that is a delusion. We become heedless, insensitive. If we consider mindfulness as doing something in a special uh, stylized way. If we think mindfulness is doing things slowly but then 
when we have to move quickly. What is that? Do we have to be heedless when we move quickly? Because in the English language now, we, many more, say, English-speaking people now are discovering the nature of mind. These words aren't so alien to us, are they? Mindfulness, concentration, and words dealing with, with mental conditions are not so strange and incomprehensible as they used to be. Because, really, our language has not been all that concerned with the mental processes. European languages tend to be very good about describing external existence. Quite good at, at, at the externals. But on the internal, the, the way the mind actually is, the nature of mind itself, it hasn't been till fairly recently that there's been any, been any attempt to form any kind of vocabulary about that. Because this takes the effort of the individual human being to look at himself or herself. To know what mindfulness is, doesn't mean to read a definition of it in a book, is, is still not, you're still not, you may not be mindful at all, even though you, you can uh, recite the definition of mindfulness. So mindfulness is, this is how my definition, from my experience of it, is the open, the mind open, receptive, sensitive, not fixed on anything, but able to fix on things according to what is necessary, what is needed in time or in the time and place. So with mindfulness, we, we no longer are forced to, to take positions, take sides, get caught up in the quarrels and problems of our families, or organizations, societies, but we can open the mind to this whole conflict. The mind is capable of embracing both sides, of being sensitive to everything, to being open, receptive and clear in regard to the right, the left, the good, the bad, the east and west, north and south, male and female, Now, getting back to personal responsibility, we regard ourselves very much as, as, as a personality. We have a strong sense of being a person. In the West, I think this is a very strong identity, the sense of, of being an individual, unique personality. Uh, our identities uh, are so, so, so limited now to this body, this particular creature here, that even family identities are, uh, have no priority for, for many of us. What our families are, uh, all these, it doesn't, it isn't so strong to think of sacrificing oneself for one's family. It's maybe sound like an old-fashioned idea. Something that is maybe for our grandfathers. But the, the modern trend is to live life for yourself, to develop yourself, to have your freedom, to do what you want, to develop your own talents, to live life on your own terms. 
have the freedom to do what you want. I hear this a lot. As I, people, uh, marriage is breaking up and the woman saying, I just want the freedom to live my life and understand myself without that husband of mine always butting in. <laughs> I want to develop myself, my life, my way. And we can do that. We have the, the society that supports that now. Western society now even encourages that view to live life for oneself. And there are certain advantages and disadvantages to that. One thing it does drive us to the position where when you live solely for yourself you become so lonely. When you're just thinking about yourself alone when you, all you care about is yourself you end up feeling totally out of communion with anyone else. And you feel incredibly lonely. There's tremendous depression and loneliness in people's lives because we, we no longer know how to Many, many people, anyway, do not know how to unite, how to have communion with, other, with another human being or with others. We get inverted, isolated in our own self-view. This takes us to the point of emotional ang- such emotional anguish that, that many of us have taken such desperate steps as even to ordain as monks <laughs> to come to terms with that. <laughs> Going off to faraway places in Southeast Asia to, to become monks, nuns. That's because of this uh, uh, very powerful anguished, isolate, isolated feeling. And yet living in a society of abundance with surrounded by friends and relatives and endless opportunities and options for self-fulfillment and freedom. And yet the more one indulges in all that and, and fixes into the self, self-view, self the more isolated and lonely and desperate one begins to feel. So it, in like all things, what might be considered say, taking individualism to an extreme is also taking us back to say something else. Because now one feels, say, not an identity on a grander scale. One feels a communion or a union with all beings. Say the life of a of a Buddhist monk is very much one where you eventually begin to feel a oneness, a unity related to all beings. Where, say, from the other extreme, from being totally isolated in, in this wretched body with these boring old thoughts that just keep bashing away inside and these emotions and a kind of desert bleak, uh, dried up mental state that you, you're in and the kind of hopelessness of the situation from that miserable state to the grandeur of, say, feeling in communion 
with all being. So then this is the, the, the opening of the mind, say, of mindfulness to where the universe is in the mind. The mind can embrace the whole universe rather than my mind with my little thoughts, my opinions and views, what I think, what I want for me, that, 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 that small, wretched little self is released and allowed to fade out for this wholeness. Now religion is the convention for that type of realization. Religious, I'm sure all religions are meant to to take us to that realization of wholeness and total union, of oneness, rather than just increase our, to to be a a divisive force, lost as a Buddhist against the Christians or or the Theravadans against the Mahayana, Mahayana Buddhists or taking sides uh, with this group against that group. We, I mean, it's easy, for, it's very ordinary for Buddhists to do this, in fact. Western Buddhists to, to take sides on schools of Buddhism or sects. Because our, our minds are so conditioned to do that. It just, we just, uh, whatever, even with the grandest, most altruistic uh, views of oneness and wholeness, we manage sometimes to grasp become sectarian Buddhists. You see, some Buddhists are totally against Christianity. Just think Christianity is totally wrong. And so this is not an opening of the mind to the whole, is it? It's, it's taking sides still. We're still caught in, the, in this unfortunate delusion of self that has to choose a side and then be pitted against the opposite. Because whatever side you choose, its opposite will attack you in some way or another. You'll feel threatened by it. As long as you're fixed, attached and bound to one view, you'll be threatened by its opposite. Now just contemplate that. In, in just in little things, we are, the views about men and women, just the, the views about what men are, what women are in the, in the modern time, about... Uh, Capitalism and communism, views about uh, Christianity and, and other religions, views of racial views or or class views, all of these, whatever. Even if we're attached to the to the greatest view, to the grandest view, that attachment binds us to a viewpoint which does not allow us to be more mindful. As long as we're lost and bound to a viewpoint, we're no longer mindful, we're insensitive. The human potential, though, is for the enlightenment. This is, this ability of a human being, as we've evolved now, human, humanity has evolved now at this time, to be able to develop this reflectiveness to a very to to an, to its ultimate place of enlightenment we find at this time that just in a country like britain 
people in this country, not everyone, but many, definitely have, uh, are, have very receptive minds. You, you don't, at least from people that, that I meet, their minds are quite receptive and open. Uh, they, the opinions and views that they do have, they, you, can, you can encourage them to look at to investigate. Uh, people want to find out what they should do, how to live their lives. People ask this question all the time. Now, people come here to this uh, center and they're very open and interested to something that is, must seem very strange in the, in the cultural context of Britain. To a Buddhist monastery to Buddhist monks Buddhist nuns with shaven heads all these kind of strange, exotic or alien looking creatures for two years in a house and trying to talk about morality in Hampstead was, was getting me nowhere was driving people away That was a word that in 1977 people uh, did not use except as, as a kind of disparaging sign. Morality meant you were narrow-minded, uh, you were prudish, you weren't, uh, you, you weren't with the modern trends, you weren't with it. You were something, say, some, something from, from your grandmother's time, from time of Queen Victoria. Morality was not a word that people liked or, or wanted to hear. They wanted to hear about freedom. They wanted to hear about having more and more freedom to develop themselves, to live their lives, to do what they want. And Buddhism in those days would, would be considered, their interest was that hopefully if they became Buddhists, that this would give them more freedom more ability to enjoy everything. You could just take a course in Buddhist meditation where you could get over all your inhibitions, all your fears, so you could fully enjoy everything all the time. Now that was only nine years ago. And now I find that the word morality has, is now quite an acceptable word. I even hear Prince Andrew is using the word. <laughs> so it must be all right. Now. That's why I, after I found that, that that he is using it, I said, well, maybe I can use it now. Now, for Buddhist morality, the word sila, the Pali word sila, the Buddhist morality is a morality for reflection and wisdom. It's not, it's not moral principles kind of handed to you, laid upon you. What we try to do in, in, in teaching, you know, in, in talking to, to, be, to people, is to present 
the, the morality not as something that, that I impose on you and sit in judgment on you. That you should refrain from drinking, from promiscuity, from this, from that. You should, and if you don't, the result will be that you will fall into a hell realm. Well, that's what, we're, what we, we equate with morality, isn't it? A kind of threat from, from above. Where somebody from above says, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And then out of fear, you, you, obe- you blindly obey or disobey. Mm-hmm. But Buddhist moral precepts are standards to be reflected on. <clears throat> Morality is not an absolute fixed position that one takes. Morality cannot be an absolute. It is a it is a convention. The sila, say the five sila, the five moral precepts of Buddhism, is a moral convention to be reflected on, to be contemplated on, to be considered, so that when you contemplate this, you begin to open your mind to what morality really means. That it's, it's not uh, a kind of horrible uh, limitation placed on you, taking all the pleasure out of life, but it is a kind of freedom. To know that, that, that to, to, to have the wisdom to know that doing certain things like killing other human beings, is something that you that that it, it, acting on such impulses will only lead to increasing misery from all sides. Now, just that alone, that that first precept of non-killing, non-violence, is the most important moral precept, and is and should be adopted on on, on the international scene. I think so many of these problems of the nuclear age could be solved just through the respect for that first precept, refraining from intentional killing of other human beings or violent behavior, intentional violent behavior toward other beings. Now that, if, 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 if say, more and more human beings resolved to keep that precept, or even nations, then of course the need for nuclear armaments, nuclear arms race, and all the threatening uh, happenings that are going on now, that could cease, isn't it? There would be some foundation for trust. But there's no foundation at all anymore for trust, is there? In, in, uh, in, the, in the nation itself, in Britain, or in Europe, or in, uh, on the international scene. There's no way that any country can trust another country. Because what has politi- politics has degenerated into power struggling, into force and intimidation and blame all conditions which create fear and suspicion and hatred, jealousies, 
Let's look in your own life, in your own experience. The more you blame somebody else, the more you, uh, say, connive and, and break uh, and live in, in a dishonest way with yourself and with others, the more suspicion you feel, the more fear you feel. The more violent you are, the more you mistrust others, the more you expect violence to come to you. What you're obsessed with, you, you, you see in everyone else. If you have ever met uh, like a thief, uh, uh, someone who has lived their lives through, through stealing, and they, they look upon everyone else as thieves. They suspect everyone. They see theft in everyone. Because that's all they can see in themselves. Nonviolence. Refraining from violent action. From violent speech. From doing things that disrupt, breed fear and suspicion. This we have to start doing in our own lives. And this is what I mean by personal responsibility. This we can actually, uh, our gift, our offering to the society we're in, is our willingness to try to live in a way that does not create fear in our own minds or in the minds of those around us. We can actually move toward, say, that in, in just daily life, can't we, to to live in a way that we can respect ourselves. We feel respect because we're living in a way that we respect. And when we do that, then we find that other people respect us. And when other people respect you, then they listen to you. They pay attention. They emulate. They follow. They admire. And so more and more people begin to feel the, the joy, the pleasure, the freedom of being responsible for their lives. And of course this is the foundation of any society, isn't it? A society is a group of individual human beings. It's made up of individual human beings. It's not, it's not just one mind, is it? So to try to, to to teach morality from the top, kind of impose moral laws on a society, can be a tyranny, can't it? Suddenly the, the, uh, the British government decided to, to punish everyone who is immoral in Britain. It would be a tyranny, wouldn't it? It would be a terrible tyranny. Because this has to... what this sense of sila in Buddhism is, has to come from wisdom and growth within. Personal responsibility. Personal knowledge of oneself. The attempt to really understand wisely the way things are. See the Dhamma, see clearly. Get beyond this ignorant view. This small, narrow, painful anguished and despairing view of self as this is very limited imperfect creature here. 
So now I would close this talk on this note and uh, open up the rest of the time for questions, discussions. position, um, is it is it sufficient to work um, on one's own um, self and one's own internal aggression and to think about one's own morality, or should um, <coughs> the moral person um, take a more active part in uh, aiming to bring about non-violence in society. And there are traps in this. If one goes out on a, on a non-nuclear march and behaves in a very violent way, it's, it's not really going to bring about a, a peaceful view of, of things. But um, is there not a case for a sort of double-track approach? Well, this is, this is one of the... Um, I'm glad you asked that question because that is a, a question that, that people, many people are concerned with. Uh, because the tendency seems to be that, that uh, if you th- that one, people tend to think that one cancels out the other. Um, that if you're working on yourself, that means you don't do anything, say, like working in a peace movement or in the society but it's important to realize that the priority always has to be with 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 the the internal conflict solving that conflict which doesn't cancel out taking part in in the society because one is as you as you begin to understand yourself more and more then you then you have a mind that is really really can have the perspective to know how to work with the society you're in Um, also we need to take into account the position in the society that we have like how to how to use our position that in a way that is skillful and in, in the spirit of dhamma and truth like if you're in business or in a civil servant or in medicine or education, uh, any of these, any professions, that, uh, uh, or just working in a factory or, uh, or a secretary in an office, whatever, this, this is also to be considered a, something that we can develop as our, as our practice, uh, as our way of living our life in the right way of being a moral uh, being one who is responsible for what one is doing and uh, sometimes people want uh, Buddhist monks to kind of make uh, statements on peace marches or peace movement kind of supporting the peace movement or but this uh, this is uh, because of, of the position of, of Buddhist monks their function in a society is to 
is to not be aligned with groups, but to be a reflective mirror for all, for all sides. So that Buddhist monks, say, and especially in, uh, there are certain Buddhist monks that, that are willing to, to say, take an active part in, in peace movements. But, say, in, from our tradition, we're, we're, we're not supposed to, to do that. Not because it's, it's, uh, it, that, that the peace movements are wrong, but because our function in the society is, to, is, to, is, is something else, other, something other than that. So that we're, uh, we, we recognize that this is what Buddhist monasticism has to offer the society. We try to, to keep it in its pure form as, as a benefit for the whole society. Um, but then, for for lay community, you take you must take into consideration that what what kind of position you have, the opportunities that you have, the uh, the what you, how you can influence in in the right way, even your even your business or, or just by being a good honest accountant or. Uh, a totally trustworthy civil servant is is a great gift to any any to to the society, and that is doesn't need to be called Buddhist. You don't have to say I'm reason why I'm witnessing for Buddhism as such, but it is just being a, a decent and and uh, uh, wise human being, and this this people need to see as as possible that uh, oftentimes people now have this view that. Everything's corrupt, and you've just, you know, you're you're part of a system that is that is degenerating. So there's nothing much you can do. And as long as people hold to that view, of course, then that's what's going to happen. It's not uh, there's no way that it could ever say change for the better. But in a country like this, this this country isn't, uh, you know, is it? There's nothing that all that wrong with it. What is lacking uh, in Britain now is is really is wise human beings. They've got educated ones, uh, literate and knowledgeable ones, and high mind many high minded ones. But true wisdom is is a great is is, is hard to find in in anywhere in the world really. Now that's a great offering as we move towards wisdom so that our, say, our connections to peace organizations or to religious groups and all this, then this is, is an actual offering to them. You know, something that is going to benefit whatever we're doing. If, it's, if what we're doing is, is for the welfare of others. The... Uh, I think the image of the Buddhist monk in the minds of Europeans tends to be a, of someone who leaves the world, sits under a tree, and doesn't care about what's happening to anyone else. <laughs> and that's a kind of, you have the Buddha images and, and the kind of symbols of Buddhism convey that to people's minds, to, to uh, European people. They tend to think that Buddhist monks somehow just go 
they, I'm fed up with this society, fed up with the family, fed up with the whole lot, I'm going to leave it, go off to the forest, and, and then there's nothing, you never see them again. All they're doing is watching their breath. While the Soviets and Americans are having a, having a nuclear war. And it, and then they say, well, it's just impermanent anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but, but when you, when you uh, contemplate uh, just the example we have of, say, Gautama the Buddha, who none of us knew, since he lived 2,500 years ago, but he is a, the kind of uh, uh, stereotype for, for, of, of, a, of a perfected human being. You know, of, of a human being, he's, he's not a divine being, he's human, fully human, and, who, and, and so his, his, his uh, whole life story is to be contemplated as, as a life of a human being. Where nowadays in Buddhist countries people tend to exalt the Buddha, Gautama the Buddha, the kind of superhuman being with so many advantages that he, he just is so far above us, so beyond us, that there's no hope that we could ever do anything and he come near to his perfection. So that, that Buddha becomes fully exalted and way beyond our abilities. But I always like to take the story of the Buddha from the birth to the death as an example of a lifetime of, an, of a human being who, was, who, who during that span of from birth to death was enlightened. The most human beings don't get enlightened between birth and death. We all are born, we all die. That's something we all do. But this enlightenment, that is uh, something that the Buddha uh, definitely achieved. And then left uh, a teaching that is uh, telling us how we can do the same. You see, so that, that's, uh, so that his life was one where he, he you know, the, the first part was very privileged and pleasurable, all, all pleasures, all privileges, everything and the best that life had to offer were, were available to him in, in every way. And then the, then the six years after he left the palace was the total opposite of that, where he denied every possible pleasure, every, any, any privilege whatsoever to live just a total in, in a state of total denial of desire. And six years of that, and then after that, the, the enlightenment of, of the middle way. And then his, after that, his, his seeing the truth allowed him to operate for the advantage of all beings. Because he, yeah, after his enlightenment, then he opened himself to the whole world. And the benefits, we're still experiencing the benefits of that. And his teaching is, is still as clear and, and uh, useful as it, as it no doubt was then. Uh, and then this is just, just an example of one human being who took the time to be enlightened. I mean, and, and, his, and left, leaving a mark that for 2,530 years we're still talking about it, still following, still 
finding that teaching uh, a valid and useful one. So this inspires me to think, well, this is, this is what one human being could do. Now, if I start thinking of Gautama the Buddha as a specially divine creature, or, then I think, well, he could do it, but I can't, because I don't feel that I'm special. You know, I don't, you know, I've come from quite an ordinary kind of uh, middle-class American family with, with no color in it whatsoever, very drab ancestry. No kings or queens or anything. <laughs> and one doesn't think of oneself as, as being extraordinarily brilliant or gifted in any way. You think I'm an average person. And yet, the, the, this teaching of the Buddha is something that really uh, touches me, that, that I find, uh, you know, that I found in the past 20 years has been an enormous, uh, made enormous change in my life from a very unhappy, selfish and confused young man to, to, a, to a, a joyful human being one that is now can look at life and, and, and willing to, to live life and, and, and open to it. So this is, uh, you know, living in this way is, is, is like coming to England in nine years ago. Was the idea of living, living in England, not to convert, not to make Buddhists out of good... British Christians or convert the, the royal family or do anything on any scale, but to live in a way that would be of value to the society. Because the society benefits from, from uh, moral beings. Beings who've taken on the responsibility for their life. That, that are here to help the society rather than to complain about it and make endless demands on it. The, uh, now we, we, we need to, with Buddhism uh, being, uh, coming to the Western world, we need to look at it as, not, not from such an exalted position of, of what oftentimes that the traditions of Asia tend to have have placed Buddha so high now that, that nobody even tries anymore because they, they think it's just past. So that you find in traditional Buddhist countries people you know, feel they can't, they can't even do it so they don't even try. But what, how we need to look at it is to, to, to see that this is, this is about human life, about your life and my life. The, the Buddhist teachings are teachings about uh, teachings that are common to every human being. They're, they're something we all can relate to. When we talk about suffering, we all suffer. Everyone here suffers, don't they? Anyone doesn't suffer? <laughs> Raise your hand. <laughs> we all, we all uh, age. Anyone not aging? <laughs> we all have sicknesses, don't we? And then we, we all die. 
That hasn't happened yet, but we know that that's going to happen. So this is, uh, this is common to every one of us. We, we, we're looking at the common ground of our humanity. With the mind opening to this, to suffering, rather than rejecting it. This we can do. The, in the West, we tend to reject suffering, don't we? We're always trying to get rid of disease, get rid of old age, don't even talk about death, don't mention the subject, don't uh, try, to, try to find happiness all the time, Try to, to uh, and get away from any kind of depressing thing, any unwanted, painful, annoying, irritating thing, and just try to be happy and, and enjoy life completely, is, uh, is uh, what, we've ten- what we, the West tends to, uh, what we tend to seek now. Capitalism and, and uh, modern advertising, all this, encourage us encourage us all the time to just seek happiness on, on, in worldly things and to, to not even mention the ugly, nasty, painful, unwanted other side of existence. But the Buddha pointed to the, to the truth that suffering is, is, a, is, is what we're involved in. We're all involved in suffering, whether we like it or not. And it's not not kind of a depressing uh, uh, truth. It's not that it's everything's suffering and there's no way out. There's that when we open to suffering, then we find the way out of it. It's only when we reject suffering that we increase the suffering. Because the, the lifespan of a human being is involved with suffering. Just when you contemplate from birth when you're born to the time you die, all that, there's always uh, suffering involved in that. Having to just deal with physical pain, with age, with discomfort, with hunger, thirst, with uh, heat and cold, with uh, having to be separated from the loved, having to uh, be with the unloved, wanting things that we don't have, being jealous and envious of people who have more than we do, uh, getting angry, hating people, all these, uh, just being caught in dull, depressed mental states. And this is, these are, we're talking about human experience, not about personal problems anymore. Well, if you notice in the, in, uh, in the West, People take all this very personally. They'll say, I suffer from depression. I have terrible depressions. And I have fear of death. Uh, and it, it, it's something wrong with me, isn't it? There's something wrong with me because I shouldn't. I should be happy. The ad- advertisements all say you should be happy. It shows these, uh, these people, just beautiful uh, people, just jumping for joy. Uh, television commercials, aren't they? Just lovely women and handsome men just enjoying life to the hilt. You think they don't ever have a pain or a backache or indigestion or anything whatsoever. Because, and that's what I should be. I should be happy like that. Because we take, we, we pers- personify, our, we personalize this suffering. But in the mindfulness, then we we open to the suffering. We're not saying, I shouldn't suffer. 
there's something wrong with me because I'm depressed there's something wrong with me because I'm afraid of death this is our human condition this is what we're experiencing now this is what we, we need to come to terms with what we must understand this is our teacher and so this, is, this uh, openness this mindfulness the, the Buddha pointed right directly at suffering as the, because that's what say ignorant human beings will not try to avoid react to with aversion and rejection and yet it is very much the, the common experience of every human being. I, I seem to find that thinking a problem, you know, that uh, um, you know, you were talking earlier on about um, human beings tripping over themselves, watching their thoughts, and that's the sort of situation I seem to be in quite a lot of the time. And it doesn't seem to get me anywhere. I still seem to, um, you know, I'm aware where I think from sometimes, other times I'm not. It still goes on. I think it's an endless sort of um, regime, if you like. And, uh, you know, I suppose I wonder what thinking's all about. I just ask that question. I mean, thinking's asking that question, of course, as well. Because <laughs> <But laughs> I feel as I suppose I suffer because, I, you know, because I'm thinking. Um, I do wonder about thinking. Thinking, well, this is, well, one recognise that you're in a society at a time where you have been educated to think and you have acquired so much information I mean the, way, the kind of information we receive during our lifetime is fantastic and it's increasing you know the ability to have computers now and, and computerize information makes information even more available to us from every direction we, we've developed intelligence so that, that one is, is uh, say, modern education is one where you, you're, you're thinking all the time. You, you're educated to think, 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 to have information, to, to put in information into your mind and think. And so this becomes an obsession of the mind. You, they, in modern universities, they don't teach you how to let go of thoughts, do they? How to empty your mind. Whenever I go and give talks in universities, I point this out, that, that I don't know, I say, why did you invite me to this university? You know, I'm, I think you might regret it. Because, <laughs> because I, you might say, I'm, uh, you might consider me anti-university. Because where, where they're trying, you're trying to study for your examinations and pour more information into your brain... I'm here to, to teach you how to let it all go. <laughs> but that one doesn't cancel out the other. It, you find that, the, that as you learn how to let go of thoughts, then your ability to think is sharpens. Your, your, the mental clarity increases rather than just the obsessive uh, uh, jumble of thoughts. Um, but also, because one does, say, one, one has an intelligent mind and, and, the, and has a lot of thoughts, obsessed with thought, then, of course, uh, you, we develop, we become very impatient. Thoughts move very, very fast. 
so that they just want, you know, a thought moment, it's just that much, so that thought, a thought goes through your mind, and then another thought, and another thought. So, there's no way you can catch your thoughts by thinking about catching them, you see, so that, because the, what, you just be caught in, in more thoughts. So that the, the, like with meditation, you're, 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 you're beginning to begin to look at thought, and you, and you begin to let go of thought. And that's just through practice, really. As you, as you practice more and more, you'll see how to do that. Uh, I mean, when, when you're starting, of course, you still you have the theory of it, and you, you like the theory, otherwise you wouldn't want to practice it. But then the, the theory is a thought. So that one, one thing that they con- uh, see that you have a, a, a physical body that isn't a thought. So that uh, much of our attention goes in meditation toward the body. Because the body isn't, uh, is, a, is a slower changing condition. So you can be mindful of the body uh, which, which stops the, the, which for at least moments, the thinking process. You'll not be caught up with thinking about it. You'll be, you'll be concentrating on maybe the breath or the, the breath that, uh, of the body, or the sensation of the body, sensations in the body. So the, the body itself is a very, is a very useful object uh, in the beginning of meditation, when you're begin learning how to meditate, because it is, uh, so it is a slow-changing uh, condition, where thoughts, and thinking about thoughts, well, just uh, everything's moving too quickly. You're, you're too caught up in in the, in in thought itself and the speed that thought has, and so then you just feel impatient. You aren't getting anywhere, and just trying to suppress thought is uh, that's done with aversion. So you shut up, and then you just try to stop it, and then you can, and then that will maybe for a moment you might just stop thinking, but then it'll all just backlash on you, just come bursting forth, and I can't get anywhere, nowhere at all. So, all of us were great obsessed thinkers at one time, but we, that the body, and this is why the, the, uh, the say we do, say, like mindfulness of the breath, and contemplating the nature of the body, and then thinking becomes reflective thought rather than obsessive thought because thinking is a great gift actually you know it's it's uh, at this time even though some people are tortured by their obsessive thoughts actually they can trans transform that tortured obsession with thought to to wisdom very quickly in fact because uh, thinking is uh, thinking in such Refined ways that we can do, that we do now, and, and having such uh, developed intelligence, this is to be to be valued, not to be despised, but to but it needs to be trained because we tend to identify with intelligence, we t- identify with thought, and and so then it becomes it controls us. We become just our thoughts all the time, and. And, and they just take us all over the place, and we just try to. And when we try to stop them, they 
it, just out of aversion. It, uh, we just end up suppressing, like holding something down, and it pops back at it. But as you more wi- wisely reflect, then thought itself, you begin to appreciate the ability to think as as a gift and something to treasure and respect rather than, a, than a, something that's torturing you that you want to get rid of. Would you recommend um, meditation for a child, an intelligent child who can use um, her intelligence to manipulate pretty well anything simply because they're accountable and they know how to be accountable but not responsible, are they? So there must be a way to make this transition from an intelligent child who will respond to care or whatever you call it to become an aware, responsible, open-minded person without manipulating anything or anybody intentionally. Children, you see, their minds are open. Like they, their children are are not, you know, they, from when you're when a child is born, it's it's just it's just as it is. It's not a, it has no personal view. It's it's just a, a completely as is creature, and uh, and it, its needs are basic, just to nourishment and protection. So things can be put into the mind of a child as they grow up. We put things into their minds. So, Self-views and fears and all this, we, uh, from the family to the to the their peer group, society and so forth. So that children are easily conditioned. You, they they'll believe they'll they'll fall, they'll emulate they emulate their parents and others and they they copy and they 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 you can suggest things to them and then they tend to 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 follow that, to believe in that. So that, like, if you condition a child to think that that she's no good, then she'll believe that. That'll, that follows people through their whole lives sometimes. Just from early childhood, where the parents uh, angrily said, you're no good. And then that can, that can haunt their whole life. So that's why, with with a child, you really need to to see that this is this is a mind that is that is it, uh, to be respected as something to be very careful with to to try to to put into the mind that which is going to help that being to understand his or her life. You know, where education now they is. When we send our children off to the schools, we send them off to be conditioned into competition and and envy and uh, and a lot of uh, un, you know really unpleasant things go into their minds in in schools these days because uh, we we look at education as a kind of competitive system where uh, where the you know getting through the exams is is very important and is an identity. If you're a good student, then that, that helps you to have a more positive view of yourself. If you're not so good, you tend to feel worthless. But the the values that children need are 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 not to, to be the the best in in a competitive system, but towards uh, 
say, kindness, learning to, to be kind, to be generous, to, to uh, take care of things, to, to be uh, patient with things, to help people, to all these kind of very good virtuous qualities can be, children are open to. And we'll find like in uh, uh, that children feel, you know, are very happy when these things are, are possible for them. Because these are very joyful kind of, and to be kind to, a, to an animal or to, to give something, something you treasure to somebody else. Children really like to do that. And at first it might be a bit difficult, but it's, and when they get, the, when they begin to experience it, they, they really, they, they take to it. So meditation for children is, is, is a very good thing. You can't, to, to talk about, uh, uh, say, children, attention span is much less than, say, an adult. They have to take into account their, their limitations. But uh, children like to meditate, too, if it's done in the right way. And they, they can visualize things, usually. Because they're so suggestible, they, if you put, uh, like, use visualizations and and methods in that way, they're they're uh, quite skillfully done. Uh, most children seem to really enjoy doing that. 